Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Well, good morning. It's great to be with all of you again here on this Sunday morning. Thank you for choosing to join us here today, whether in person or online. We are blessed to have you. We are going to continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We've come as far as chapter 2, verse 13. You want to open your Bibles there this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. To this point, we have considered Matthew's genealogy in the first part of Matthew in chapter 1. We've considered the narrative of the birth of Christ the visit from the wise men, and today we will look at the last few events that are tied to the birth of Jesus and in the first few years of Jesus' life. Oftentimes, the remainder of chapter 2, that which we'll consider here this morning in verses 13 through the end of the chapter, oftentimes it is lumped into the story as a whole. Uh, It just becomes a part of the Christmas time narrative. But today I want to challenge us, like really any passage of Scripture, but especially those that we tend to be more familiar with, to challenge us to look more intently with perhaps a fresh perspective at that which Matthew has to share with us. Matthew did not pen his gospel with Christmas tradition in mind. He didn't pen his gospel simply to tell a story of Jesus' birth. Matthew, in writing his gospel, wanted to give an account of the life and ministry of Jesus and considering his audience, which was uh, to be the Jewish people of the day, he wanted to assemble the pieces of a puzzle, if you will, to put these pieces together to show that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, picking out key events that were going to help people to understand how it made sense that here the Savior had come into the world. And as he addresses his Jewish audience in a book that will eventually be read by all, uh, Jew and Gentile alike, ourselves included, we begin to see why Matthew touches on some of the key events and how these events give us a patterned fulfillment in prophecy that reminds us that Jesus is greater, that he makes all things new, that he is truly the one and only Messiah, our King Jesus. And so let's begin this morning by reading together in verses 13 through 15. We read, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now we read here that uh, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child. Uh, uh, The angel spoke to Joseph and tells him to take the child into Egypt. It's at this point that the wise men had just left, the the magi from the east. They have just departed, and, and remember... By this time, Jesus is likely anywhere from 6 to 18 months old, uh, likely somewhere in that range. And now because of the threat of Herod, God directs Joseph to take his family to Egypt until he's told otherwise. And so Joseph does so immediately. Just a, a side note here, I do wish that we knew more about Joseph. He's one of those characters in the Bible that I look forward to knowing more about when we are in glory. Uh, from the time we're introduced to this man, we don't learn much about Joseph, but we find one 
one who is compassionate. We find one who is thoughtful, who's quick to obey the Lord. And though his role may not be considered as much in Scripture, this man certainly demonstrates for us a great deal of godly character. I mean, Joseph is to be emulated here, the way in which he just follows the Lord with such obedience. And it says in verse 14 that when he arose, he, being Joseph, took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this morning might feel a little bit different. Uh, maybe not, maybe different isn't the right word to use, but we're going to look at these, uh, this passage of Scripture. And, and again, rather than just kind of read through this narrative and consider some of the things that were happening, I think it's important for us to really consider what was Matthew trying to communicate here. And so right here at the, at the very first mention of fulfillment of prophecy, we need to pause and consider this. It's debated how long uh, they go to Egypt for, okay? Some of you might have that question in your mind. Some say that they were only there for months. Others say that they were there for years. In either case, it was not an odd thing necessarily that Joseph would take them to Egypt. Obviously, God directed that. But there was a Jewish population that was living in Egypt at that time. So it wasn't entirely uh, out of the ordinary for a family to be there. But specifically, the fact that Jesus would go there has some significance when we consider him as the Messiah. I mentioned uh, just a moment ago that for Matthew, thoughtful of his audience and the points that he wants to make, he's very intentional with the events that he highlights. Matthew's gospel is a little different than the other gospels. We can find ourselves going, why does he bring this up as opposed to what some of the other authors did in their own uh, gospel? Many times in the first two chapters even, whether in the genealogy uh, or in making the case for the line to the Davidic throne uh, or considering various fulfillments of prophecy throughout chapter 1 and even the first part of this chapter, Matthew does this. He touches on, on unique things and some of, some of them are subtle, they're nuanced, but it's all to show us a pattern of fulfillment of prophecy. In the history of Israel, there are many significant events. If we were to highlight some of uh, those more major events, we would probably include in the list things like God's covenant with Abraham and the partial fulfillment of that through the birth of Isaac and then of Jacob and Jacob's offspring, which formed the tribes of Israel. We would certainly mention then the migration of God's people to Egypt as a product of Joseph. You see, there was another Joseph who went to Egypt before uh, this particular Joseph. And, and uh, of course, he goes under, under duress, under difficult circumstances, but it's the means of God saving his people Israel. And so many then follow in. And then there's the eventual enslavement of Israel there in Egypt, which is followed by the Passover and the Exodus. And this is celebrated by Jewish people still every year, even today. And then we would probably speak of Israel eventually inhabiting their land after time in the wilderness and God's covenant that he forms with David. But we would also speak of the eventual destruction of their land, of their exile to Babylon, but also their eventual return. All considered, all of these events considered against the backdrop of their hope in promises, in covenants, where they continued to look forward toward the future and their promise of a Messiah, their hope. 
And so when we think of what's called patterned fulfillment in prophecy, what we do then is look at something that's happened in the past. We look at a historical event and we consider it a pattern for something that happens in the future, a picture of something that happens again. And oftentimes finding its fulfillment in this future event, if even, if even somewhat uh, redemptively, uh, that is that the future event sort of takes something and makes it new. And so let's read verses 14 and 15 again, so hopefully this starts to make a bit more sense. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So what we see Matthew continue to do now is to mention fulfillments. And through the remainder of this chapter, he will mention three. This is the first one. And here he directs our attention to the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1, which says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. You see, without Matthew, we would likely just look at this as an event in the life of Jesus. But here he makes this connection for us and makes it clear that just like Israel, so too would the Messiah make his exodus from that place. As Matthew does this, he forces us and he forces Jewish readers of his day and, and since then to look at Jesus and to say in him we have a greater deliverer than Moses that we have a greater exodus, that we have a greater son than the nation Israel, that Jesus, in fact, brings us a new exodus. You see here some of what Matthew is doing and the pattern that he is trying to create as he takes, he takes the events of Jesus' life, he says, look back. Look back at the important events in the nation of Israel throughout the history of Israel, and now look at what's happening in Jesus' life and begin to see how Jesus is making these things new. He's giving you a new experience. He's giving you something new to celebrate. And this is what Matthew is attempting to do for us, okay? So this is the first thing that he does here in this first fulfillment. Let's go ahead and read in verses 16 through 18 together. He says, uh, or he writes, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here in verse 16, we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was angry. He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to that time which he had determined from the wise men. You see, Herod realized that the wise men were not going to return as he had asked them. They weren't going to make known the whereabouts of the one born king of the Jews. And so based on the time that the wise men had said that the star had appeared, signifying the birth of Jesus, Herod determines then to put to death those boys in Bethlehem that are two years of age and under. And as horrific as this is, it is hardly the grossest injustice on the part of Herod. He had done far worse. Probably in this city, there were anywhere from a dozen to two dozen boys that were put to death based off of the population of Bethlehem at this time. So you can imagine the great mourning that was taking place in this small city. And it's the mourning 
they're weeping here. They're, they're struggling with this event that Matthew makes a connection with. And it can be somewhat confusing how all of this connects as, as Matthew writes, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And so as you look at this, you could think to yourself, why, well, why is Matthew mentioning this all of a sudden? We're talking about the death of these babies in Bethlehem. Why is he now talking about this voice heard in Ramah? Rachel weeping for her children. Isn't Rachel, wasn't she Jacob's wife? And what does that have to do with the babies being killed in Bethlehem? What Matthew does for us here as he mentions this is he makes clear here that the pattern fulfillment is found in Jeremiah. And that's what he's referencing when he says that in verse 18. He's referencing Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15. And remember that pattern means that it's a historical event that serves as a pattern for the future. Well, what of this event in Jeremiah? Even when we look to Jeremiah, it takes us back further. What we need to consider is Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 22. In Genesis in chapter 35, in verses 16 through 22, we read of Rachel. And it says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it had happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Here's this whole section here that this verse in Jeremiah connects us to, and now Matthew's connecting us to it. Well, here on this journey, on their journey toward Bethlehem, Rachel in childbirth dies. Now the location where Rachel dies is Ramah, and it's there that she's buried. Now, why does Jeremiah pull this into view? If we, look back at, uh, if we look back at Jeremiah in chapter 31, where this comes from, this is the time of Israel's captivity, of their exile to Babylon. A foreign enemy has come into the land and is taking their children captive, okay? Now, Rachel, for Israel's people, has long been held as the matriarch. She's considered sort of the, the weeping mother, over her children, over her own children at this moment, but then also as she dies and is buried in Ramah, Ramah serves as the staging place for the nation Israel as they're leading them into captivity, okay? So what Jeremiah is effectively saying is, and, and Jeremiah is later imprisoned in this same area, what he's, what he's sort of giving a view to is that as the children of Israel are being taken into captivity, they're being marched through Ramah where Rachel is buried, weeping over her descendants. Okay? So hopefully you're tracking here because, again, we've got to understand why in the world is Matthew saying these things? And so Rachel, again, watching from her grave, is seeing her offspring marched into captivity, and she's weeping over this. She's mourning over this. Now you may say, okay, that makes sense for Jeremiah to mention that Rachel is weeping over her children as they're being brought through Bethlehem. But why Matthew? Well, remember, it's a pattern. 
And for Matthew, he's making this pattern now the death of the children in Bethlehem. Once again, consider the fact that the matriarch here is weeping over the loss of children. But also remember, where was Rachel headed on her journey when she died? She was headed to Bethlehem. So it's said that she died looking towards that place which she wanted to go. The hope of the place that she was going to. She was looking to Bethlehem. Now the important thing to note is that it does not end there. Okay, In Genesis, in 35 17, remember we read, now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. So she says, the midwife says to her, you're going to have this son, don't fear. And then in Jeremiah, in chapter 31, in the following verses, it's one thing for us to read, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That would be fitting with Jeremiah as a whole. The book of Jeremiah is one of, not many people like to read Jeremiah, called the weeping prophet for a reason. But look what happens here in verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. As soon as the weeping is experienced here, as soon as the mourning has begun to be experienced, as the children are marched out of Israel... They're reminded, don't fear, have hope. They will return. They will be brought back. In fact, it's later on in chapter 31 and verse 31 where it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so hopefully then it starts to bring our attention around to what Matthew wants us to understand because what he wants us to see is that Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the place where Rachel was headed, where there is loss and there is mourning, that Jesus is the hope beyond exile that was prophesied to Rachel. Jesus is that hope, that he is the hope in the midst of your hurt, that he is the hope in the midst of death, that he is the hope of a new covenant. Do you understand that this morning? Once again, if we look at the first pattern and now we look at the second pattern, what Matthew is wanting to do for us is to say, look at these things in history. And as significant as they were and as hard as they were, look now out to Jesus and see that he makes those things new. Amen? Moving on, let's go ahead and read in verses 19 through 23. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. So here now the direction comes, and Joseph, obedient once again, he returns from Egypt. In verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. 
Now, Archelaus was worse than his father. While Herod the Great was a violent and an evil man, he did some things for Israel that were of some value, whereas Archelaus was simply evil and he was considered worthless by all, and he would eventually be removed from his position by Rome. And because of his evil reign, Joseph does not return to the area of Jerusalem, but instead to the Galilee region, which Matthew recognizes here the significance of. And he says in verse 23, And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, there's the third time we see that in this section, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, just when you think you might be getting the hand of this whole pattern fulfillment thing, you'll find yourself trying to figure out which prophet said this. In the first one, it was Hosea. In the second one, it was Jeremiah. But in this one, if you go throughout Scripture and you go through the Old Testament trying to find which prophet said that he would be a Nazarene, you're going to come up empty-handed. Nowhere do we find an Old Testament prophecy where someone said Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So what's the deal? Now, what we need to note here is that differently than before, that Matthew writes here that he fulfilled which, excuse me, he fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophets. That's plural. Meaning that there was not uh, a specific reference, rather, but a summary of themes that were really prophetic expectation. Now, what was this expectation? Well, in Isaiah 53, we read in verses 2 and 3, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Or we read elsewhere in Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 1, uh, He here shall come forth from a rod, from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Here's the thing. First off, the Galilee region, it was not considered a great area. There was quite a mixed population there of Jew and Gentile, fishermen and tax collectors. Nazareth was the worst of them all. And we all know throughout our country uh, areas and cities that are largely considered just a bad area. It's not too foreign for us to think, boy, nothing good comes from that place. In John, in chapter 1, verse 11, we read, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So where did he go? To those who were sick, and in need of a physician, to the sinners. In John, in chapter 1, verse 46, it was Nathaniel who says to Philip, Nathaniel says famously, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? To which Philip responds, Come and see. You see, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says it best when he writes, he meant, this being Matthew, he meant that the prophets have described the Messiah as one that would be despised and rejected of men. They spoke of him as a great prince and conqueror when they described his second coming, but they set forth his first coming when they spoke of him as a root out of a dry ground without form or comeliness, who when he should be seen would have no beauty that men should desire him. The prophet said that he would be called by a despicable title. And it was so, for his countrymen called him a Nazarene. But here's the other thing that we may miss as we look at this. And I know there's a lot here today. The Hebrew word translated branch sounds like Nesser. It's the root word or the base word of Nazareth. And so the title Nazarene essentially means the man of Nazareth, the town of the little branch. And for you and for me this morning, what this means is that Jesus came for the least of these. It's that he came as a branch that would reach beyond the garden of Judaism over the wall into the reach of the hands of the Gentiles. And for that, we all here should be grateful this morning. 
Jesus took the lowest place. I want us to start to think about that here. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and we're going to begin to prepare for communion. I don't want to say this again. Jesus took the lowest place. The king of the universe descended from his rightful throne, and he entered into our world. And in doing so, listen, Jesus marked a new exodus for the Jew first and for you and me as he who is greater than Moses says, come, follow me. You see, that was your exodus, wasn't it? When you decided to leave what you were in, the world that you were a part of, and to follow him. Jesus brings an end to our mourning and to the exile for the Jew first and then for me and and for you as he says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus comes and he chooses the lowest place as he declares the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see, what we need to recognize this morning is not just simply that Matthew is recording a story of Jesus going to Egypt to escape Herod, coming back and settling down in a nice lake town. As he gives us insight into who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished, he proclaims to his Jewish brethren of the day and he proclaims to us by the power of the Spirit still today that Jesus is greater than anything in history and that for you, Christian, Jesus is your new exodus. He's your end to mourning and he's the one who has come to a lowly place to meet you right where you are and to be an example for how we're to care for others still today. This is the opportunity now, though, for us, as I mentioned at the very beginning, to look beyond the story itself and to consider what really is being communicated to us about who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is and what it is that he's done for us and to rejoice in that, to worship him for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We love you so much, Lord. And Father, we thank you for, again, how you open our eyes, Lord, to the depth of what it is that you've done for us. Lord, help us to remember and to know, Lord, that when we think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, Lord, It is the truth that you have come, you've died for us, you've been resurrected. As we believe on you, Lord, we're promised reconciliation and eternal life. But Father, the fact is the gospel, as we should all know, is your entire word, Lord. It's everything you've done from the very beginning to the very end, Lord. You have been in pursuit of us all along, Lord. You created us knowing, Lord, all that would happen. But in your love for us, Lord, you made a way for our salvation. Lord Jesus, even as you came, even as a, as, a, as a baby and as a young child, Lord, the events of your life are intended to show us, Lord, what you were doing. You were redeeming, Lord. You were making things new. And we look forward, Lord, all of us collectively to that time when indeed all things will be new the way that you've intended them to be. We thank you, Lord, for that promise. Father, bless each of these here today as they follow after you. Lord, as a good shepherd, lead and guide us, I pray, in all things. And we ask all of this in the matchless name of our Messiah, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.